Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, one of my absolute favorite writers in existence writing about basketball it's caitlin cooper caitlin what's going on i I want to give you the floor to tell all of the people all of your outlets that you work for and that you write about the indiana pacers and the nba at large for Right. So I write about the Pacers, mainly at Indy Cornrows, which is SB Nation's Indiana Pacers blog. And then occasionally I do freelance pieces, mainly also about the Pacers, but occasionally some other teams at SB Nation's main site. And then I've also done a freelance piece at 538 on just defensive perception that I think is pretty timeless. Yeah. Caitlin, I think, has this ability to break down basketball that is almost unlike anyone else working in the industry. So I've wanted to have her on for a while. It's that you predominantly cover the Pacers and the Pacers don't always make the most news is maybe the fair way to put it right uh now they seem to at least be in the market for DeAndre Ayton and I wanted to talk to Caitlin because I know that because they're in the market for DeAndre Ayton I know she's done quite a bit of work into DeAndre so I want to talk about DeAndre. Obviously, there's this Adrian Wojnarowski report that Donovan Mitchell is more available for trade than maybe what was initially thought uh, when they traded Rudy Gobert. And then finally, we're going to talk a little bit about Summer League. We're going to talk a bit about Ben Matherin, who obviously plays for the Indiana Pacers. I want to talk a little bit about Keegan Murray as well, maybe some of Caitlin's other impressions that she's seen. But let's start with DeAndre. What is your overall impression of DeAndre? And just let's start with this weird situation that it seems like it's hard to find a landing spot for a, you know, 23, 24-year-old guy coming off of a rookie-scale deal who was just the starting center who averaged 17 points, 10 rebounds on 63% from the field on a 60-plus win team. These guys never really hit the market, and when they do, they tend to get gobbled immediately, whereas right now DeAndre it seems like is struggling to find a home what is your impression of this situation just as we kind of dive into this before we talk about his game and potentially where he fits league-wide and where he fits with the Pacers potentially given the reporting that's out there about their interest in him most notably from Brian Windhorst Yeah, I think what's most curious about Aiton for me is, and maybe Suns fans would tell me differently, I'm not sure from his perspective when we look at all of this, and I've talked to a few Suns podcasts about this, I don't know that I fully understand what his motivations are. I mean, we know that he turned Mm. down, that he didn't get the five-year max from Phoenix, and that clearly was something that he and his agent wanted, but... For instance, is he interested in playing for the Indiana Pacers? Like, obviously, there's a lot of momentum here. We've heard from the Pacers side that, you know, they've wanted to sit down with him, potentially give him an offer sheet. But is that a situation that he would want to go to? Um, is he just looking for a bigger role? Is he wanting to be a number one, number two option, get to do more things? I know he said in the past about wanting to be more of a four. Is that matter to him? Does he want to go to another team that's a contender? Is it mostly, you know, financially motivated? I'm not sure that I fully 
understand that completely. And then also just why it's frozen. I do wonder how much the Kevin Durant situation is playing into all of this and whether, you know, they're looking at potentially three team deals because, you know, he could go out on his own and look for his own offer. Like if he really wants to go to the Pacers, that's an option for him. But if he's looking to, you know, maybe I want to get to another team, then, you know, maybe Toronto is like, well, we're not going to give up everything for Kevin Durant, but we do have interest in DeAndre Ayton, and maybe that's something that interests him more. Maybe that type of situation is. Yeah, it's fascinating because I think that it's just so weird to me. The teams don't like aren't like moving, not heaven and earth necessarily, because at the end of the day, DeAndre is a center in an NBA that is moving away from the center position uh, in the way that DeAndre has played it thus far in his career. Do you feel like there's a chance we're kind of like underrating DeAndre on some level? Because when I watch him, I think he's like basically a top 50 player in the league. And he is a high-level defensive center who can go out and switch, which is the biggest component to being able to stick in the playoffs in the NBA as a center. He is a genuinely elite finisher at the basket because of his tools. He's just strong and long and extremely athletic. He has potential to shoot it. He's not a real shooter yet by any stretch, just in terms of it feels like confidence or maybe Phoenix didn't feel confident in him, uh, but there was something there missing where he wasn't as active of a shooter as what, you know, I remember when he was a, you know, 15 year old as an elite prospect, 16 year old coming out of the Bahamas, people were like, oh yeah, he's like this uh, seven foot tall kid with a seven foot six wingspan who can step out and shoot it. And that just hasn't really developed in the way that I would imagine, you know, eight years ago, people would have thought that he was going to develop into. So do you think that we are like kind of underrating what DeAndre can be? Cause I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot of skill here. There's a lot of talent here. And on top of it, there's a lot of like, he has proven this at this point that he is a genuinely elite center moving forward. Like there's a case that he's a top a top seven center in the NBA right now, as we speak. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a controversial tweet I had during the conference finals where I put out there, and I really wasn't trying to start think pieces for everybody. I was just like, you know, Maxi Kleba is the tallest player in the conference finals, averaging over 25 minutes per game. And I kind of wondered going into that, you know, Miles Turner's entering a contract year. I knew Aiden was going to be, you know, entering into restricted free agency, how much that would impact teams. And that's not because other guys on those two teams weren't playing quote unquote big roles, just that, you know, we weren't seeing a lot of, you know, not that eight and seven foot, but we're not seeing a lot of seven footers out there in those two conference final series. And, you know, maybe we look at that differently if, you know, Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. are healthy, or if James Harden's looking more like James Harden and Joel Embiid's not having all the injuries he's had, you know, maybe that's a little bit too reactionary, but in Aiden's case, I've been a little bit surprised locally what some of the reaction just with, you know, Pacers fans opinions of this have been because I think I kind of lean to yeah we are overthinking it a little bit because like yeah. if you look at the Pacers situation look at who their projected starting lineup would be like independent of eight and we're probably looking at Tyrese Benedict Matherin either Buddy or Chris Duarte they've said that Jalen Smith is the starting power forward next year and then Miles Turner so if you have Tyrese whose game is mostly built around his range his touch on floaters and then his overall feel for shifting tertiary defenders. In my opinion, he's going to be best suited with a rolling big. Somebody who's going to be moving toward the basket to really open up and make that more deceptive, make what his lob pass can be, his skip pass package can be. Um, Somebody else in that roster that can do something more than just be spot up, because every one of those guys, majority play type, is a spot up 
guy. And I think that there is something to that because if you look at like the splits between Malcolm Brogdon and Buddy Heald last year, they were more successful in minutes with Tyrese and Buddy Heald. And I do think going into next season, I want to see how much is Tyrese going to be willing to do. Because when he came over from the Pacers or to the Pacers last year, he only led the team in field goal attempts three times. And like his usage rate went down quite a bit when Malcolm was playing with him. So I think that there is pretty good reason next year to kind of just turn the keys over to him and be like, let's see how much he's going to do with this type of a roster. At the same time, I don't think it's, I think he can optimize anybody that's out on the court with him. I think he's that caliber of a playmaker, but I do think that they need to put some thought into what is going to optimize him. So there were possessions last year where, you know, he would see switches against lengthier guys, whether that's, you know, really high caliber center switching out like Evan Mobley, or sometimes it would just be up in Detroit and it's Killian Hayes switching onto him. And he's having some struggles getting into the paint and he really didn't have an option of somebody to throw the ball down low to. If this is DeAndre and you now have somebody with roll gravity, you have somebody with, you know, pretty much a lethal hook shot that you can throw the ball to. I think that that helps Tyrese in a lot of ways. Like I, I totally understand this from the Pacers perspective. Yeah. Like DeAndre's ability to just like seal dudes off once he rolls to the basket is ridiculous. Like he's just so much stronger than everyone. You can't switch him because if you switch him with a guard, it's curtains. He's just going to seal him at the end of the day. And then it's a hook shot or it's a dunk and it's over. He's stronger than most centers that play in the NBA at this point. Like he's going to be able to seal guys like Bam at a bio. Even he's going to be able to seal guys like, like I, I can like, freaking JaVale McGee, like guys like that. Like he's going to have no problem. Like just guys that have higher center of gravity or guys that are six foot nine, six foot 10 or shorter. Like he is enormous and he is strong and he's physical on those specific types of plays. Like, I don't know if he establishes uh, his position well when he's just like on the block, when they would run like the designated post up that they would try to like get him engaged with sometimes. But I think that he's really, really effective when you use him out of ball screens and just have him roll, use his downhill ability to establish that position and then go like he can be a shot creator in that way. On top of it, like I do think he has real role versatility. Like, yeah, he's not Miles Turner is a shooter and Miles is a legit floor spacer, I think, especially for the center position where you have to take him seriously in that way. But I do think that by the time DeAndre is like 25 years old, 26 years old, he's probably going to be able to take a couple of threes per game if you want to, you know, invert the offense a little bit if you're committed to a Jalen Smith, right? Where you want to have him space the floor and like on the wing or in the corner and then you want to have Jalen Smith be the rim runner, kind of guy that's there or like i'll be honest i kind of loved the terry taylor experience last year like if you want to run terry taylor is like your rim running pick and roll big and have deandre you know spacing the floor in the corner it gives you a lot of options i think in terms of the offense and i'm so glad you brought up the idea of tyrese halliburton particularly because i agree with you i think that tyrese is going to be best with like a pure rim running center. I think that we saw a lot of moments, for instance, with Rashawn Holmes in Sacramento, where that was really, really effective. That, you know, combination of defenses having to really pay attention to his floater game, having to pay attention to his ability to pull up shoot. It just drags defenders away from the rim a little bit. And if you have a lethal threat, you know, Rashawn Holmes is six foot nine, something like that. DeAndre Ayton's seven foot seven foot six wingspan has just the same vertical leap as Rashawn Holmes. It's going to be all the more lethal. Like I think Deandre averages 20 points and 10 rebounds in Indiana next year. If he's playing with Tyrese Halliburton, I really do. 
No, and I agree with you. And everything that you just brought up is all stuff that I think matters to Rick Carlisle. That I, or at least I've deduced over the last season, matters to Rick Carlisle. Because you bring up, you know, putting Aiton in certain post-up situations. I do think he can be a little bit formulaic with some of his post moves. I mean, he's yeah. he's pretty much going to turn over his shoulder to get to his right-hand hook shot, and then his counter for that is to spin back to his left and get to his mid-range, which he's very effective at both. But if you have a teammate or a defender of the caliber of like Draymond Green, he's going to sit on that and take it. Um, yeah. You saw the Dallas Mavericks do that to a little bit of an extent, but Rick Carlisle also doesn't really like to run a lot of that. So like when you're looking at, you know, the role action that you brought up, like they like to run, you know, I, Phoenix ran like Ram screens into double drags. The Mavericks, I mean, the Pacers ran that too. So you're going to see that. And like, just as an example, like I'm spoiling some of my article that's sitting in a draft that people will be able to read if this ever actually does happen. But like they're up in Portland, Portland's not a great defense, but Nurkic and Robert Covington switch that, that double drag. So Aiden has Robert Covington just absolutely buries him under the rim. And it's an easy two. Like that is something that will matter to Rick Carlisle, and that's a way that they will enter it into an interior mismatch that just really isn't an option currently for the Pacers. And then what you're saying there with like even just Terry Taylor being able to have combinations and two-man screening actions where you're not 100% sure which of these two players is going to pop and which of them is going to roll. Like last year with Sabonis and Miles, that was clear which one of them was going to pop and which one was going to roll almost, you know, 100% of the time. They did have Sabonis shooting threes, but it was predictable. Like, if you can add in a little bit more variability between the different combinations you can put out there, I think that that does make a difference. And I think that that's all stuff that Rick Carlisle readily wants to do. Now, I will quibble a little bit with Miles because his contest rate on threes has never been very high. He was seeing some contests early last season because he was shooting the ball really well, and you saw him kind of use, like, a one-dribble escape move. But, like, I can point to a lot of games where, like, for instance, Tom Thibodeau is kind of a guy who not very often do you see fives defend Miles Turner, but he would do that. Like he would put Mitchell Robinson on Miles just to sag off of him, just so that he could, you know, be on Sabonis or like, you know, they got into crunch time against the Warriors. They were bringing, they're running like horns twists and bringing Miles off an exit screen. And Draymond Green was just like, okay, see ya, bud. I'm just going to stand in the lane. (laughs) Like I'm just going to play goalie and just muck this up with Karras and Sabonis. So like, there's not a lot of things like Miles has grown in certain areas, but there's not a lot of things that you can readily point to with him and be like, that's a way that he impacts the defense. Well, a lot of times he can take advantage sometimes of what, you know, him filling gaps or what he might do, but it's not something that readily puts a defense into rotation. Yeah. He needs miles would need to be like a 37% shooter. And I feel like right now he's like a 33% shooter, 34% shooter yeah. uh, for defense. It's a like really, truly always the good defenses give a shit right like otherwise it's just going to be like okay most of the time we're going to let you shoot sometimes they'll guard them out there sometimes like if it's no sabonis out there and like you're just you know you have to like space out in the way that you do like you might guard them but the other thing is that miles has always been able to you've always been able to switch onto him uh pretty easily and if you have like a switchable big you can just you know stick a guard on miles and that ends up being the issue at the end of the day. Whereas you can't do that with Deandre. Deandre is just a more flexible, versatile offensive player. uh, Despite the fact that the shooting isn't quite as good. I think he actually does give you, it's weird to say, like, I think he gives you more gravity as an offensive threat, even though, you know, we associate the terminology of gravity with shooting. And I would say miles is a better shooter than than Deandre right now, but I think he gives you more gravity just because, versatility of skill set is real like you saw this in indiana like i would say miles turner is probably a more consistent shooter than demonis sabonis but demonis can do more stuff like you just have to have that guy guarded out high because if you get him involved in dribble handoffs he's just going to be a nightmare for the defense to deal with 
Yeah, exactly. And we don't always think about spacing that way. I mean, because that's true. Um, people were asking me that about, you know, if Miles goes to Phoenix, what that would do. And, and my general opinion was, you know, I think that Chris Paul, like Tyrese, kind of needs to play with a rim roller to open up his elbow shot as well. But um, Devin Booker's rim frequency went down last year. And people like, well, maybe if Miles is outside the paint, Devin Booker will get to the rim more. And like that didn't really play out. Like if you look at the numbers last year, when Miles was at solo five, Karras and Duarte, Brogdon and TJ McConnell got to the rim less when he was out there mm-hmm. at the five. And I mean, some of that's screening too. And it's also what you're mentioning. Like, yeah, you're not playing traditional five out, but you can play Sabonis up top, run handoffs, or you can use him to thread backdoor passes. And that's another yep. way to get to the rim. And, you know, eight and I don't think I would classify as a hub, but you can run handoffs with him. So if he yeah. is out there, like that is a way to space the floor. If you sag back off of him, then you're giving, you know, open shots to Duarte, Matherin, to Tyrese Halliburton coming off those handoffs and also just bringing that backside defender off. He does have more roll gravity. Like that's another thing that, you know, there were certain games where if miles would roll, like one, I remember very vividly, they were in overtime against the Lakers and it made sense to be involving miles in the screening action. Cause Carmelo was guarding miles. So they put him into the action while LeBron's guarding Sabonis in the, in the corner, LeBron comes all the way off and strips miles. Like that's a situation where miles will draw a defender over because it behooves them to sag off of Sabonis in that situation. But Generally speaking, he doesn't have a lot of gravity. Like when he had his like 30 point game against the Rockets, they were blitzing and they were just keeping everybody home on the shooters. So, yeah, um, yeah he scored 30 points, but it didn't necessarily reshape the defense for anybody else. Yeah. And I will say too on DeAndre, like DeAndre is not a great passer. Like that's right. probably the one part of his game right now that's deficient in the way that, uh, particularly affects the way that defenses will be able to play him in the playoffs or play him even in late game situations like you're discussing there. He's also, 23, 24 years old. And I think that bigs in general, we've seen guys like this be able to be able to develop at least like counter a single counter pass, right? Like Clint Capella by the end of his time in Houston figured out how to make that cross corner kick that was always open to PJ Tucker off of the short roll. Right. And while you're not going to always short roll Deandre, uh, you're rarely going to short roll him in my opinion, it is good to have that versatility for if teams do put two on the ball when Ben is running a secondary screen or, you know, someone like Tyrese obviously is running a primary ball screen to initiate your offense. Like it's super valuable to have someone that can at least put the ball on the ground like DeAndre can once or twice stop and even just like reset the offense. Like I feel like miles even can struggle with that from time to time. So yeah, no, I, I agree with this. Like, I think this is a home run for Indiana. If they end up doing this, I, I don't, I don't understand why they wouldn't at the end of the day. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought that up because Aiton and Turner are not similar players, but they are somewhat similar in their weaknesses. I do think that they're processing and feel in those types of situations particularly, and it does matter with Tyrese because he is going to draw two to the ball because of his pull-up shooting threat. Like I, I saw that when Gogo was the screener, when Ajax was the screener. Goga does pretty decently in four-on-three situations, I felt, over the back end of the season. But, yeah, when Aiton has to do something in space, if he has to put the ball down a couple times, especially like if you close to his his right leg and he has to go to his left, it it can get a little bit dicey. Um, There's even just one possession against the Pacers in particular where you can kind of hear the announcers. He catches it. And, like, Jay Crowder's wide open in the opposite corner, and he won't take the shot. He doesn't pass it to Jay. And they're kind of like, whoa, like, what's going on here? And Jay Crowder gets pretty frustrated by it. But, like, what you're saying, like, DeAndre's already really impactful, and he doesn't have that, and he's 23. What if he does? What if that does come around? Like, then I think you're feeling pretty good that, that you've gotten him this summer. So, yeah, I agree with you. From the Pacers' perspective, I don't, I don't know. If, if there's a holdup on their end, I'd be a little bit confused by that. 
Can you figure out what Phoenix is doing? Like why, why this isn't just a no brainer, like pay him a four year max and move on or match a four year max and like keep him and move on. Well, and that, part of that makes me wonder here because I mean, it's been reported pretty widely. We know from the Malcolm Brogdon deal that, you know, Herb Simon doesn't like to hurt other partners. He doesn't really like to play in restricted free agency with offer sheets. That was in part why that became a sign and trade with Malcolm Brogdon where the Pacers end up sending picks. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that approach, but you know, maybe it's possible that Phoenix has already kind of communicated that they would match a four-year max. So maybe this is some type of thing where the Pacers are like, well, we're going to have to convince you. So what are you going to be interested in a sign and trade? And I don't know what that type of price would be for the Phoenix Suns. But yeah, if, if I were the Phoenix Suns and it was a four-year max, I would match it. Like I, yeah, I think like, hard about that. And on top of it, it's just like, what is your alternative? So, okay, let's say that it's like a sign and trade. You're letting DeAndre go. I can't imagine that the price tag is more than like a first round pick, right? Like it, you're getting a first round pick and you're getting based on base year compensation, like a $15 million ish, let's say um, trade exception, right? Because so for people who are unaware, Indiana obviously right now does not have max cap space. The way that they can get to close to max cap space, uh, they have $26.4 million right now. DeAndre's max is like 31. I believe that the way they can get to max cap space, they cut Dwayne Washington from the roster. They stretch uh, Nick Stauskas, stretch Malik Fitz, and that gets you like up to 30-ish. Does that sound right to you, Caitlin? Yeah. 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 Um, and like 30 ish is what that you're going to make Phoenix match essentially like a four year, 135 max, something like that. Um, 130, 135. I don't know what the exact number is, but you're making them, you're putting pressure on them to sign a deal that they did not want to sign literally in October. And we know that they didn't want to sign this in October because they didn't sign DeAndre to it in October because it's literally the max that they could give him. It's just four years instead of five years. So, I would assume that this is not going to be like an enormous coup where Phoenix gets anything more than like a $15 million trade exception, maybe a first and a second round pick, something like that. So what is your other option if you're Phoenix? Based off reporting, maybe Jake Fisher. I can't remember who said this, but it seems like San Antonio's price tag is more than a first round pick for Jakob Pertl. It is like a first round pick and a quality young role player or something like that. So you're moving in that case, probably this first round pick and then an additional first round pick for Jakob Pertl, given just where your asset situation stands, or you're moving Cam Johnson in something for Jakob Pertl. Neither of those two things are more interesting to me than just re-signing DeAndre Ayton at the end of the day. The other name I came up with was like Wendell Carter, but that requires like Orlando to be like, we're good with what we've seen from Paulo. We think he can play the five. We're happy with Mo Bamba. You know, we're happy with X, Y, and Z. We think we can move on from Wendell Carter. We're happy with Jonathan Isaac's continued recovery from his many injuries that have occurred over the last couple of years. We are comfortable moving Wendell Carter. That's at least multiple first round picks again that you're moving though for Wendell Carter, I would imagine. So why are you again, like the alternative here is just signing DeAndre Ayton. Why would you not just re-sign DeAndre Ayton? Because there's nothing on the free agency market right now that resembles a starting center. There's nothing on your roster, you know, all due respect to Jock Londale and Bismack Biombo that resembles a starting center. I, I don't understand this. I, I 
for the life of me, I cannot fathom what the plan is for Phoenix, I guess. So yeah, I mean, they put themselves in an even worse position. I mean, it doesn't necessarily sound like the Brooklyn Nets are interested in DeAndre Ayton, but if you just let mm-hmm. him walk to the Pacers, he's not somebody that you're going to flip into a third-team situation to get more assets to send up to Kevin Durant either. And maybe maybe everything doesn't hinge on that. Maybe, like I said, maybe Brooklyn's just more interested in Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnson and, and the four picks or the three pick swaps. I don't know that exactly, but I just think that it would be better off for you to retain DeAndre Ayton, keep him as an asset, keep your options open because that's a lot better to me than going after. I mean, I like Jakob Pertl. I think Bismack Biombo played well for them down the stretch of the yeah. season. I don't think he's a starting center. So. Yeah. It's like no, no disrespect to Bismack. Who's like, you know, literally funding hospitals in Africa and is uh, literally like reshaped his career into something valuable in the NBA, but he's not a starting center anymore. And we can admit that. And like, I don't know if he would hold up as a starting center just physically at this point, given that he's an older player now. So I, I just. We're talking about players securing the bag. When they get drafted in June, I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with Nord VPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN. If you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. (laughs) 
it, it kind of eludes me where Phoenix is going here. And I think that this dovetails nicely into this next discussion point because Adrian Wojnarowski reported today that the Jazz are more willing to listen on Donovan Mitchell than they previously had been before. Part of me wonders if the reason that this is leaking now is that because Malcolm Brogdon, that trade has gone through, the physical has been taken, apparently. I don't know that for sure, but it seems like the physical has been taken. Everything has gone through. There is now actual pressure on Utah to try to figure out what it wants to do and what its long-term direction is. So I wonder if there is a circumstance where, like, could Brooklyn be trying to parlay Kevin Durant into Donovan Mitchell and other stuff while Phoenix gets Kevin Durant and, you know, it'd be Donovan Mitchell, Mikael Bridges, Cam Johnson, whatever, right, to Brooklyn. Phoenix gets Kevin Durant and then DeAndre goes up to Utah. Uh, Obviously, you know, you brought this up before we started recording that Brooklyn would have to find a landing spot for Ben Simmons would have to turn into like a four team deal in some regard. But I wonder if like that, if like these, all of this could be interconnected in some way, does that line up for you? I mean, it feels like all of this has been a standoff that's been interconnected. I do think that the Ben Simmons piece is the trickiest one though, because you can't have Donovan Mitchell and Ben Simmons on the same roster. And it's like, given that he just came off a of back surgery and what the last year of his career has been, I'm just not seeing that there's going to be a lot of teams lining up to potentially, you know, give Brooklyn assets to take on Ben Simmons's contract. But maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe there would be. Well, and for what it's worth, just explain why teams can't have both Donovan Mitchell and Ben Simmons on the same roster right now. Right. Since they're both on designated rookie contracts, correct? Yes, it's because they're both on designated rookie contracts and they drafted neither of those two players. So you can't acquire two guys via trade, basically, that are on rookie scale designated rookie extensions. And the reason that this doesn't apply for someone like Brandon Ingram is that he didn't sign an extension. He waited until he hit restricted free agency before his max, which is why New Orleans remains the situation that, like, if they would ever put Brandon Ingram on the table, just, like, lines up perfectly in my brain. But... Um, I don't know if they will necessarily or not. The if you were Utah, I, I well let, let's start with this. Where where do you assess Donovan Mitchell's game at this point? Because I think he is a fascinating player because he came out of his career like gangbusters and he beat Paul George and Russell Westbrook in a playoff series is like arguably the best player in that series. As good as Rudy Gobert was like, they don't win that series without Donovan Mitchell. uh, Absolutely. Just dominating from a perimeter scoring perspective. Uh, He has since, I don't want to say regressed. I don't think he has grown as exponentially as what others were hoping for over the course of his career, where do you, where do you assess Donovan Mitchell's value at this point league wide? Like, do you see him as a like top 25 player? Do you see him as a top 15 player potentially? Like where, where are we at with Donovan? Cause I, I struggle with him to be honest, as much as I love uh, Donovan, like as a human being that seems to do good things in Utah and like, you know, having spoken to him, like when he was a draft prospect, he was like a great human being. I just, I, I don't know what to do with his game at this point. 
Yeah, I mean, just on the surface, it's probably somewhat controversial, but like if the Jazz were going to split things down the middle, which clearly it sounds now that they're at least willing to listen to offers on him in addition to having already traded Rudy Gobert, it's almost like I probably could have made an argument for keeping Rudy Gobert instead of Donovan Mitchell, just because I think Rudy's going to provide you with a higher floor defensively and that maybe you can replace some of what Donovan's offense was if that's what you're going to do. But, you know, it kind of does relate to the Pacers to an extent that like, you know, how good are you going to be if you cut things down the middle? And can you rebuild things around Donovan Mitchell quickly enough when you have all these draft picks to really make that worth your while? And how much better will he make you next year? Like, are you hoping to get into the Victor Vembignana sweepstakes? Is he going to make you good enough that you're not going to be in on that? I don't think that I fully understand or know the answer to that question. But I mean, defensively, let's just call it what it was. Like there was some really bad defensive moments from him in that series against the Dallas Mavericks. I don't know that I think that his playmaking has quickly has taken off enough for me to see him as like the primary number one option on a good team. So then you kind of have to ask like what teams would be wanting to get involved in this. And I was racking my brain a little bit on this before we hopped on and, you know, like it sounds like the Knicks are going to be one of the teams willing to put an offer together there. And that one kind of surprises me a little bit because you just spent over a hundred million dollars on a guard who's six foot two and under. And now you're going to trade like a ton of assets for a guard who's six foot two and under. Like, I just think that that's going to cause a lot of defensive issues when you look around at the Eastern conference and you're looking at Milwaukee, you're looking at Boston, you're looking at Philadelphia and how you're going to put together like a reasonable defense there. Like sometimes I think like, yeah, this is a rare opportunity that the Knicks would have to go after, you know, potentially under the right circumstances an all NBA caliber guard, but sometimes does it not behoove you to be patient and just wait on the league to continue changing? Like I know that the like fans of the Pacers were getting very impatient with the Pacers front office and how long they were dragging their feet on the Turner Sabonis situation. And they clearly didn't have a crystal ball and knew that Tyrese Halliburton would become available. But by being patient, they did put themselves in the position yeah. of Tyrese Halliburton. So if I'm the Knicks, I don't know that I'm in a big hurry to give up. You know, I know that they have their own four draft picks, plus I think three to four more from other teams, plus their yeah. young guys. I don't know that I'm willing to do that and potentially give up, you know, R.J. Barrett or whatever Danny Ainge's price is going to be. But if I'm a team like Miami, yeah, I might do that. Like if we look at the Philadelphia 76er series and we're watching Tyler Hero getting blitzed a lot, like yeah. wouldn't it have helped? The Miami Heat, if you had somebody who could attack without a screen, like it's one thing to beat the blitz. It's another thing to have a guy who can attack in isolation and score. And when you also already have a really good defensive infrastructure like the Miami Heat do to plug Donovan Mitchell into. Yeah. Like to me, that's probably the number one team that makes the most sense if if you're gonna add Donovan Mitchell and hope to take another leap forward. You're gonna have to have that type of setting. So from the year twenty thirteen, I have a quote from Pat Riley. Uh in a statement regarding Danny Ainge, the now current head of uh, basketball operations for the Utah Jazz. Danny Ainge needs to shut the fuck up and manage his own team. He was the biggest whiner going when he was playing, and I know that because I coached against him. Yeah. Look, I'm a little bit skeptical that Miami is going to be able to pay what it would cost here uh, to get Donovan Mitchell based off of that relationship alone. Uh, Cause I would imagine just knowing the way that Danny Ainge goes into these negotiations, we saw how it worked with Rudy Gobert. We saw how it worked with uh, Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce years ago in Brooklyn. We've seen how it's gone for years and all of the, uh, you know, trade proposals that uh, everyone has publicly said that Danny Ainge turned down in Boston, that, Danny Ainge is going to ask for the world 
from the Miami Heat for Donovan Mitchell. And I am extremely skeptical that Pat Riley is going to want to put up with his shit in order to get Donovan Mitchell based off of uh, past history. So look, the Knicks, let's just call it what it is. Like Jalen Brunson is a CAA uh, repped client. Donovan Mitchell is a CAA repped client. Uh, The New York Knicks are run by Leon Rose, who ran the CAA basketball division. I would imagine that these things all play together and have been considered for a while now. Like I, I saw, you know, as much, you know, Nikias Duncan is one of my favorite human beings writing about basketball. Um, he said, like, I'm sorry for Jalen Brunson uh, now that Donovan is apparently available. And I was like, I can't imagine that they didn't have this discussion with him beforehand that they would try and chase Donovan Mitchell if Donovan Mitchell uh, eventually became available because it became clear following a number of, you know, it became clear following the Jazz's most recent uh, playoff ouster that this was not long and Donovan Mitchell is unlikely to be long for Utah, in my opinion. Uh I would imagine that the Knicks have known for a while they're going to try and make a run at him. I don't think it's breaking news that they're going to try and make a run at him. The question is, what do you give up for Donovan Mitchell and whether or not you give up R.J. Barrett? And I pose that question to you, Caitlin. Do you give up R.J. Barrett in a trade for Donovan Mitchell? No. No, I, I, I'm sure Knicks fans are probably going to get mad because, like I said, they, they, there's only so many chances to get an all-NBA caliber player. I just I just think that if you're looking at the rest of the Eastern Conference, like, why are you making this all-in move? If you're going to put all those picks on the table and potentially R.J. Barrett, like, I just think defensively you're going to have too many issues in a playoff series with two guards of that stature. And it's not that Jalen Brunson doesn't compete. And, I mean, Donovan Mitchell had some moments where I would kind of question the compete level in some of that last series, but... I digress, but like, I, I, just I don't think, think you're wrong for that for what it's worth. Like yeah. he was just letting dudes blow by him uh, defensively in a real way that was concerning. Yeah. So I, I just, I, I don't know that I think that's the right move for the New York Knicks. I'm sure that they were probably going to go after it. I mean, we all know that they were, you know, quote unquote scouting that series and were there with bells to see Brunson and Donovan Mitchell playing. But um I don't know that that would be the top team that I would have in line. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the Raptors are kind of interesting here too. Nick Nurse likes to run offense where they can have isolations there. You can have another creator. Um, obviously, you're going to have some size issues too with Fred Van Fleet, depending upon what type of package that would be. But um, that's kind of an interesting team just to throw out there too. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of the Raptors if only because of the size factor. Like they've been so outside of Fred committed to building this like enormous, long you know, wing court or what, like whatever you want to call like the wing group, like with Scotty Barnes and OG and Anobi and even like precious. Yeah. Like somewhere between six foot seven and six foot 10 and long and athletic and versatile defensively, you know, they've accumulated so many of those guys, but maybe you do that in order to be able to get someone like Donovan Mitchell into your strong defensive infrastructure. But you brought up the idea of a strong defensive infrastructure in regard to Miami before. And like, here's the thing with Donovan. We've seen him in a strong defensive infrastructure like Utah, you know, and maybe you can say that like Rudy is the defense and maybe they didn't have the best overall schematic infrastructure. And maybe I will like, honestly, I'll listen to that argument. Rudy is an exceptional defender, but 
I don't know. Like, uh, you might just really have to work around Donovan to a significant level defensively to where, to answer my own original question that you answered, I don't know that I would give up RJ Barrett for Donovan Mitchell. And the only reason I say that is because of the fit with Jalen Brunson and RJ is a pretty good defender. Like that's the thing that kind of goes underrated about his game. Like he is tough. He is strong as hell and he is able to deal with guys defensively uh, across the backcourt. Like if it's RJ, I'm not giving up much of anything else. If I'm the Knicks, if I have to acquire Donovan Mitchell for whatever reason, but I don't know. It, it feels it feels like it's going to be hard. I agree with you. It would be hard to build a backcourt defensively in the Eastern Conference when you have to deal with Giannis, when you have to deal with Boston, you have to deal with all of these teams, Jimmy Butler as well in Miami. It would be hard to manage a Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brunson backcourt. And I think it would be setting up, setting him up for similar problems to what he had in Utah, pairing with Mike Conley, who it, you know, for many, many years was a great defender. I think he is a willing defender. I think Jalen is a willing defender, but size issues just create schematic issues for you in the playoffs against these big creators. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that they're, you're going to have a lot of uh, a stat that they should start tracking possessions hunted. I think that that's going to be pretty high for, for honestly. That's brilliant. <laughs> I'm with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that would be pretty fascinating for us to all look at when when series are over to see who is hunted the most on possessions in a playoff series. But yeah, I mean, it's one thing like what you said before about the infrastructure in between Rudy Gobert and Miami. I mean, so much of what Miami does is. You know, they're almost like a collect in Boston to an extent, too. They're, it's like they're a collective organism. Like, it's very h- tough to point out where the weak links are and who the best defenders are because it's it's everything. It's picking Trey Young up 94 feet and then having guys that are constantly in the gaps and know where they need to be and are early with the help and ready to be over where they need to be. Um, that type of communication and being on a string to the degree that those two teams were in the Eastern Conference Finals, I think would make a difference even if you are hunting Donovan Mitchell because I think they're going to come up with ways to scheme around that more so than, I mean, I guess some of that would probably be somewhat comparable in a Tom Thibodeau system to what he was doing already in Utah because my guess is they're going to you know be playing a lot with a rim protector on the floor as Tom Thibodeau is prone to do and be trying to just funnel stuff to the middle of the floor as much as possible. Yeah, and that's a really good call and you know, I I also bring this up too, like with Boston, I mean, we saw what they looked like earlier this year with Dennis Schroeder, right? Like just removing that from their defensive infrastructure and adding someone like Derek White, who is bigger, longer, more active defensively, fights through screens a little bit better, uh, can slide down the lineup at least somewhat effectively onto threes, even though he's not necessarily like a high level switch defender onto threes and fours, right? Just having someone that can hold up in that way is really, really valuable in comparison to someone like Dennis Schroeder. I think that both Jalen, Jalen Brunson is more effective as a defender than Dennis Schroeder is because he's stronger. I think he's a little bit more willing to fight. Donovan should be more effective than Dennis Schroeder is defensively, but I don't know that he always was. Uh, he, again, stronger, has the crazy length, has a little bit more twitch athletically than what Dennis does. It's it's just hard. It's hard to make those guys work. And I bring up the Schroeder thing, if only because I think that he's a prime example of how having just one weak link 
can some uh, and look, I don't want to put all of Boston's early season issues on Dennis Schroeder, but like it can really, really hinder what a defense is trying to do. And I wonder if putting a Donovan Mitchell in Miami, for instance, um, even though they worked around Tyler Hero and his defensive, you know, let, let's just call them issues. I, I guess that I've said issues like six times now in the last <laughs> four words, but whatever. Um, they worked around Tyler's issues defensively, but I, I don't know. Like it, it's hard. It's it, it's hard to like separate the idea of these teams are good at identifying personnel who fit their defensive scheme versus like the greatness of the defensive scheme. Like Miami's undeniably a great communicating defense. Boston's undeniably a great communicating defense, but you can only do so much when there are so many targets out there. Like you're saying in terms of being hunted defensively. Right. And I think you could definitely sell the difference. I mean, just Derek White against the Miami Heat, for instance. I mean, part of the reason yeah. why their movement shooters were having the problems that they were is because he was connected in lock and trail. They were stunning yeah. over and having meetings of three every time those guys caught the ball. Um, that cuts off your supply of what you're able to do. Those outlets aren't there anymore. That takes away the movement of what Miami's looking to do away from the ball a lot of the time. So big difference there. But maybe with Donovan Mitchell, like even if he is being hunted, I mean, I think that at times Tyler Hero is practically just food. Like that's just who the people yeah. are looking for. But like I said before, like he's getting blitzed and it's just you having to play around the blitz. If you have Donovan Mitchell, you know, hopefully you don't even have to send a screen up there and he can create and get into the paint and drive like yeah. he does. Maybe you're willing to accept some of the defensive drop off a little bit more because of what you're gaining offensively by just by having him yeah i think that's right uh okay let's let's move to summer league and finish up with some of the guys that you have seen at summer league Uh, i do want to start with ben matherin because i really liked ben coming into the draft i had him at number five overall on my board um what have been your impressions of ben so far for the pacers Right. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it's too much different than like, this was kind of the first year that I really had to dig in on draft content because a lot of times, <laughs> I mean, a lot of times the Pacers are this team that goes through the middle. Like I've never really had to dig in very high on, yeah. on top draft picks, but um, I don't think my impressions are very much different than what I expected coming out of Arizona. I mean, especially since like the Pacers are already running some of the plays that Ben Matherin ran at Arizona. <laughs> like uh, they yeah. like ran one where they try to isolate him for a back cut and then they're running like an elevator action on the other side. And like the Pacers already did that on like the first possession of the game against Charlotte, which Amazing. I thought was pretty cool. And, and Rick Carlisle had talked about like how much he appreciated Tommy Lloyd's offense at Arizona and knew that yeah. Ben was going to understand things and that that meant a lot to them with all three players that they drafted. But um, I still think that I feel mainly about like you can see a divide in both games, I think, where I like him a lot better, you know, attacking out of wide, attacking out of handoffs or, you know, more so than just straight up pick and roll. I think to this point in time, there has been a few possessions where, you know, if Andrew Nemhart isn't on the floor, he's doing some in primary. And I don't think his, his shake in those situations is quite as good in terms of what he's going to be doing in off ball settings. But like, I don't really quibble with that very much because I know he's going to be playing with Tyrese Halliburton. So a lot of the yeah. stuff that you're going to be seeing his, his job's going to be even easier. So like, I, and there have been little things like he did get an isolation against Brady Manic when they were playing the Hornets and actually hit a step back too. Um, I saw him snake his dribble and get into the paint around a pick and roll with Isaiah. Jackson and made a shot there. He's attacked very well off the catch, very quickly getting into the gaps. Um, you really see where his athleticism pops there and obviously in the open floor, which I think was a big thing. Like if you look at what how the Pacers did things in the draft, I think that there was a definite emphasis because Tyrese Halliburton is a guy who really wants to get the ball and get to the other end of the floor to provide Rick Carlisle with players who are going to make that 
easier for them to do that because that really hasn't been a feature of Rick Carlisle teams over like the last seven years. So some of that's yeah. personnel based. We know that Luca likes to play a slower style and Malcolm Brogdon did to an extent too. But I think that some of that is also schematic with what Rick Carlisle's doing. But I think if you give him the tools and the horses to do that, um, just even watching some of what Kendall Brown's been doing in these two games. Now, do I think he's going to be a regular part of the rotation next year? No, probably not. But you can see how easily he runs and get and what his leaping ability is in transition. So I do think that there's been a, a significant emphasis on upgrading the athleticism of what the Pacers roster is. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Like if they do end up not signing DeAndre or even if they sign DeAndre, uh, using Kendall Brown as like a four that can like go up and screen and can back cut and do a lot of different things. Like I think Kendall's actually really interesting. I had him, you know, early second round, but I think his ceiling is very high because of his athleticism. He has to shoot it. And I have not a ton of faith in the shot for the next couple of years. But how that develops is going to be the key because if he can shoot it, he's actually a really interesting player because of his switchability defensively. He has a loose dribble, but he's comfortable dribbling as well. Like you can see him uh, in the open floor, particularly. I think that you can see like he has his head up. He's trying to make things happen. Like he has decent passing vision. It's just that it's going to take uh, a couple of years for him to iron out the skill set stuff. Uh, I think he has the feel stuff down actually and it's just going to take some time um yeah i like ben I, I really like the idea of ben with tyrese particularly for all of the reasons you said because tyrese is really good at collapsing and bending defenses and getting ben in advanced situations is really where he shines in my opinion like a if he's in an advantage situation where a guy's close out on him heavy he can relocate into jump shots he can attack closeouts and hit a two-foot jump stop floater obviously can get all the way to the rim and dunk because he's very explosive uh, on top, I, I just think that he's going to develop. Like, I think that we way underrated what his uh, growth curve looks like. He is like a 19 year old still that, is, or he might have just turned 20 now that I think about it. Um, that is still developing as a ball handler. But once that happens, he has all the tools to be very effective. And the jump shot is going to open up everything for him. The fact that he has that already is just so, so important moving forward for Ben. Um, Yeah, it's funny. Now that you say that with the Pacers, too, they drafted Ben Matherin, who played for Tommy Lloyd. They drafted Andrew Nemhard, who played for Mark Few, who worked with Tommy Lloyd for two decades Mm -hmm. and they drafted Kendall Brown who played for Scott Drew, who is very close with Mark few. And I think has taken some offensive concepts in terms of ball screen continuity from Mark few. So that's a really interesting point. I didn't think about that until you just said that. Yeah, all three teams. Because, I mean, I, I had watched Jeremy Sohan. I hadn't really focused a lot on Kendall whenever we were doing the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the pre-draft stuff. But, like, all three teams, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like, Euro ball screen continuity stuff is there. They're playing flow game. Like, Arizona ran a lot of NBA-like actions. When I did my pre-write-up on Benedict, when we got done with it, I was like, I don't know if we need to do any more of these because I was pretty convinced that's who the Pacers were going to take because they were running four or five different sets for him that Rick Carlisle already runs. Like, And the Pacers had talked about, like, we're going to bring guys in for workouts and we want to sit and watch film with them and we want to hear from them. How do they fit with us? And I was like, nobody's going to have an easier job doing that than Benedict. He's just going to be like, I'm, well, I'm going to do that. Like, that's what you're running. I I already do this. Like, just plug me in right there. So, yeah, yeah, I was pretty convinced that that's who their selection was going to be if they, if they, picked after you know the top four guys the only guy that i thought really i assumed that Jaden ivy would be gone the only guy that i thought would really uh create a conundrum for them was keegan murray mm-hmm. and i know that 
from what I was told, they really, really liked Keegan pre-draft as well. Um, Keegan's been really good for Sacramento. It's been a lot of what I would have expected from Keegan. I don't mean that negatively. Like Keegan is excellent at getting the ball, grabbing and going, using his transition ability, using his combination of fluidity and uh, power, particularly. Like he is strong, he's physical, and he's fluid and explosive. And he can get out on the break and create offense that way. Like I've been. Very, very impressed. He's knocked down shots, which he shot 39% from three this year. I felt pretty good about his ability to do that. Uh, what have you thought of Keegan so far? Because uh, I know that you've said that you've watched a decent amount of them as well. I, I really liked Keegan, and I would have really liked him if he was on the board when the Pacers were selecting as well. Um, I, just, I would describe him just as a technician. Like He's not a guy who's necessarily going to create advantages, but he is a guy who's going to find advantages, I guess is the way that I would term it. So like when I was watching one of the California classic games, I think they were playing the warriors and it was like, you know, two or three minutes left in the second quarter. And they ran the same play for Keegan three possessions in a row where he's just flashing up to the elbow. (laughs) And the first time he gets it and he misses a tough shot, but he has a really quick second jump, makes the offensive rebound. They run it again. He gets pushed out beyond the three point line, attacks the guy off the dribble, makes the tough shot. The next time down, it's like, Oh, I'm going to fake you. And I'm just going to back cut and get to the rim. And it reminded me like he did that exact same thing in the one Ohio state game I had watched where they ran a play to get him an elbow isolation and he really couldn't create separation. So they took a timeout when they came back out it was like oh i can't create separation that way i can if i set you up and i cut back to the rim and i catch this lob (laughs) like that's the way that he thinks through things and like i already like the way that the kings are using him because like if you just think of a lot of guys that come off a stagger screen like if you're thinking like just in pacer terms like it's justin holiday it's doug mcdermott most typically like maybe Doug McDermott's the first screener and he flips around and comes off the second, but mostly he's going to be running off the screens. I've used, I've yeah. seen the Kings do like five different things just with a stagger with him. Like he'll be, <laughs> he'll be the second screener. And then he comes off a flare and goes to the corner. It's for the four man to shoot. They'll run yeah. twirl and he comes off. He'll be the runner running off both screens. And like against the Pacers, he was the first screener and just dived off that into a post up. Like he just, the guy ran off and it was just for him to slip and get to the basket. So like this type of stuff, like if, just being somebody who covered Sabonis for a lot of years, like they did Sabonis in his career with the Pacers did not have somebody at the four spot who could do this. Yeah. Like, and, and just like running zoom action. Like I remember watching a Denver Nuggets game one night when Nikola Jokic ran a pin down into a handoff with Michael Porter Jr. And Michael Porter Jr. Being the shooter that he is rises up so quickly. And me thinking to myself, like how much easier would the game be if Sabonis had a guy who could do that? And like Keegan Murray doesn't have the release that Michael Porter does, but like point being like, you're not running four or five actions with miles Turner and DeMontis Sabonis, but the types of stuff that you could do with Keegan, that makes a difference. Yeah, it does. It really does. Like that's exactly what I wanted to ask you because you've seen a lot of Demonis over the course of your life. Now, uh, you've seen what six years worth of Demonis, uh, something like that. Yeah, and he has just never had someone like this and uh, he's never had someone like Harrison Barnes even that can do stuff like this. Now he has two of them that are going to be able to run all sorts of different actions. They're going to be able to uh, run like a legit five out offense where you're running like four or five actions, like you said, and you're going to be able to just incorporate dribble handoffs with Demonis. You're going to be able to like run dribble handoffs with Keegan Murray handing off to Demonis if you want to. And then Demonis uses that ability. Uh, you know, maybe he's getting downhill, taking the ball, putting the ball directly in his left hand on the left side of the court, driving to the rim. Demonis can make crazy quick, high level processing reads off of those actions. Two guys that are spread all across the court. Uh, 
And the fact that you now have guys like, you know, Chris Duarte, who can act as like a secondary ball handler a little bit, who can shoot. You have Tyrese Halliburton, who can really, really shoot the ball off the catch. You have Buddy Heald, who's obviously got a lightning quick release off the catch. All of this, Ben Matherin, again, another guy like, I mean, Harrison Barnes. Or no, I'm sorry. We're we're talking about the freaking (laughs) uh, Kings now. My brain just completely broke. But like, you've got all these guys that can shoot with the Kings, even nonetheless. Like the Kings are going to be a really really fun offense. Yeah, Yeah, you've got Herder, obviously. Herder, Barnes. Um, I got really excited thinking about like old Pacers teams, and I was like, man, if you put the bonus on this Pacers team, it'd be so no, fun. No, legitimately, it would be. Like, I've thought about that so many times, like wondering what Tyrese and Sabonis would have been like together on the same team. But yeah, oh, I mean, my God. What yeah, I mean, I, there's a, some. Of Nonetheless, the my point is, my point is, like, you can just do so many different things with these guys. And while I have some concerns about like De'Aaron Fox not being able to shoot in these actions, uh, you're still going to be able to like, you still have to close out on De'Aaron on some level because he can just like take a one dribble pull up mid range jumper and hit it. Well, yeah, I mean, just think about the, I mean, the play that they're running for Keegan, like on the first possession of every summer league play that I referenced before, like they're running a stagger with Keegan as the second screener, and then Keita steps out and makes it a flare screen for it's a corner three for Keegan in the corner. So, like, if yeah. that's De'Aaron Fox and Sabonis, like they're running like a little flip action to get the summer league guard to be able to make an easier pass down from the wing to the corner. Like, if that's yeah. De'Aaron Fox, you don't even need to run that. Like, you just be yeah. like, okay, just beat your guy into the paint, and when you get there, like then the center is going to have to collapse at the nail. Towards towards De'Aaron, that's going to be even more open. And if the center comes off Sabonis, like there's just a lot of options there with that. And like you're saying, like Sabonis processes the game at a very high level. I think Keegan Murray does as well. And they are adding, I mean, even Malik Monk, like when he was still in Charlotte, they would run like two yeah. game stuff between Monk and Cody Zeller at times where Monk was somewhat of a playmaker off a of pin down. So like defensively, I still have some questions for their team and what they're going to do to put together. But like, this is an interesting team. Like I'm excited that Kings fans have an interesting team to watch and that they're trying to put, you know, a pretty competitive product out there to watch grow together. But yeah, I mean, the one narrative, yeah. like Saponis always gets like kind of pegged as like, he hasn't gotten any better and he's like this anachronistic center. And I just do not understand that. Like I've been monitoring yeah. stuff that he's done and improved over the last several years. And like what you brought up before, like little by little, like under Nate McMillan, he started to have like a little bit of privileges to grab the ball off the rim and bring it up the court. And he would almost yeah. always go to his strong left hand and then it would be like a quick handoff for Doug McDermott. Then the next season, Nate Bjorkman let him do that a lot and they would get into it more. Now this season, like that wasn't Rick Carlisle doesn't like to run a lot of offense through the bigs. Like the dynamic between what Sabonis's role was for like the first two months was a little bit weird, but strangely enough, when they got into like the COVID situation (laughs) and there weren't a lot of guards available, like there was legitimately possessions where Sabonis would play both sides of the pick and roll in the same possession. So like what you're talking about with Keegan, like, there would be times where Sabonis would get an inverted elbow pick and roll. He'd hand it off to the shake cutter, spin around, and then he would roll and dive out of that with that guy then becoming the ball handler. So I don't think people fully realize all the different types of things that Sabonis can actually do. I think they just look at him as a post-up guy who clogs the paint. And I just think that's really inaccurate, but that's just... No, like, yeah, the things that I think about with Demonis are more... I don't even think about the post-up stuff, weirdly, because I just don't think that it's going to be a part of his game as much uh, when he plays for, like, a great team eventually and i think he will because these guys that process the game at the level demonis does they tend to figure out like how to get to a great team at some point like it's the dribble handoff stuff like every time i watch demonis's dribble handoff stuff i'm just like oh holy shit this guy's like fucking brilliant and guys who can think the game the way that he can they aren't anachronistic they are capable of 
like figuring things out in whatever situation they're placed in. The fact that like the Pacers were able to figure out their weird too big pairing for as long as they did, it had much more to do with the way that Demonis thinks the game through and thinks about spacing than it did with Miles Turner's just pure ability to space the floor. Uh, and I think that oftentimes people like kind of conflated those two things. Uh, I have concerns with like how Demonis fits on a good defense. I think Demonis is a smart defender who knows where he needs to be and who is pretty good positionally. Like, you know, smaller quick guards do blow by him. They can leverage him a little bit and they can cause him issues that way. Like he can get hit with step backs from time to time as well, but he's a lot of them are like tough shots. And look at the end of the day, like the playoffs at the highest levels, you are playing against guys that are like, you know, the tough shot guys, right? The guys who are capable of specifically taking advantage of these players. But like, those are my concerns with Demonis Sabonis. Like, how does he fit playing in the conference finals as opposed to, like, day-to-day defense where he's tasked with, like, trying to, you know, corral a pick-and-roll and drop coverage? He can do that shit easy. Like, it's he's going to be able to do all of that stuff, and he can at least, like, use his body and, like, put it on the line at the rim, even though he's not, like, an elite-level rim protector or anything. He's always available, and, like, availability really helps a defense – do I think it like totally translates to him being like the most incredibly effective player on planet earth um, that maybe lives up to what his ceiling is in the regular season in the playoffs? Maybe not, but he's fucking awesome. He's the top five center in the league for a reason. Yeah. I mean, defensively it's been kind of an interesting journey from him because, you know, when Nate McMillan and Dan Burke were there, the scheme was pretty straightforward. They shrunk his radius a lot. He got to stay around the basket. When you have like a point of attack defender, like what Corey Joseph was when he was still a role player for the Pacers, like a lot of the machinations of drop coverage go out of the way when you can stay skinny through screens like that and be fighting over the top. The last several years, the Pacers didn't necessarily have that. And the Nate Bjorkren scheme was just, you know, we go over on everything. Even if it's Russell Westbrook or Ben Simmons, we are funneling everything to the rim no matter what and that's just not going to work with with Sabonis as your five or at the four spot Um, so then you know this past year I think Rick Carlisle tried to mix it up and I think to Sabonis's credit I think that he did show quite a bit of progress they played more high wall with him he would hedge and jump out above the level which you know there were some games where he was really effective with that probably the best defensive game I've seen him play they played against the Miami Heat early they won that game in overtime and he was jumping out above the level getting steals against Tyler Hero and Jimmy Butler um, I don't think he necessarily got enough credit for some of the defensive progress he made. Like, I agree with you. I think that there is, like, if you were in a conference final situation, he probably is going to get hunted. He's probably going to be pretty high up on the possessions hunted stats line. Yeah. But, you know, I, I always thought, like, if the Pacers were going to trade him, and obviously the Warriors gamble paid off in terms of keeping their youth and not making a move for a big... But he would have. I'm so sung. glad you, you're about to he, say that. He would have sung yeah. in that system, running modified split cuts with Sabonis and having to have a guy uh, who can make reads and be aware of Steph Curry at all times and have Draymond Green defending next to him to cover up yeah. some of that. Oh, it, it would have been it would have been very fun to watch. I, I'm surprised that they didn't do it. I, I honestly th- like look. They could have easily done this, right? Like it it would have been. I mean, no, they couldn't have easily done it because Sacramento traded Tyrese Halliburton and they don't have an asset that is as good as Tyrese Halliburton. For as good as Moses Moody, you know, Jonathan Kaminga, James Wiseman, 
all those guys. I, I really like a lot of those guys. Like they, they would have had to give up like Jordan Poole and something else uh, that would have matched the Tyrese Halliburton asset. But I agree with you. Oh my God. It would have been the most fun basketball ecosystem that I can remember. And they would have figured it out. Like, I'm so glad that you mentioned the idea of them playing higher in ball screens with the Monist because I, I didn't even notice the stuff where like they were playing, you know, just full on hedging, but I did notice them playing a lot uh, flatter at the level in terms of Demonis being able to just like, okay, we're going to play you flat at the level. You're going to recover back onto the big. Uh, you can at least corral this guy for a little while. Make sure your guard recovers. Make sure that you're in the gap. He's just so smart at using his body at the end of the day to be able to play the gap, to be able to stop you know, cutting down angles for guards, to be able to make those high-level passing reads to the roller. He's just uh, – I, I really, really like Demonis. It took me a while to like – it took me probably – a year and a half after his breakout to like really, really wrap my head around all of it. And I still think he's probably more of like a top 40 player as opposed to like a top 25 player in the league, but he's so good. He's so, so good. And like people who think he's worse than Deandre Ayton, he's definitely better than Deandre Ayton. Like he's just so much more versatile. Yeah, because the thing is, is it's like, I don't think people realize like how bad the Pacers surrounding shooting was when, around the time yeah. when he got traded. Like they ranked 25th in the NBA. Justin Holiday, I think, was the only player shooting above 36%. And like literally they played a game against the Phoenix Suns and you could hear Chris Paul on the broadcast, look at their bench and say, back up, they can't effing shoot. So like yeah. there was games where you would be seeing Sabonis getting defended by three people. And for him to be putting up those numbers while that was happening, like, I mean, there would be times where you're running a double drag and like in defense of Malcolm Brogdon and some of his playmaking, when you're running a double drag and like Miles's guy has one foot in the paint and TJ McConnell's in the corner and there's two people just waiting for Sabonis to roll and he's still getting what type of numbers he was getting. And then like when he got traded over to Sacramento, their shooting situation was equally bad. Like they ranked 25th in the NBA over the back end of the season and Justin wasn't even shooting as well for them. So for them to now upgrade what the shooting situation is at so many different positions going into it, I'm very curious to see what that will do for him and how much easier his life will be once he doesn't have like, I mean, it's, it's really funny. Like if you watch the Pacers play the Toronto Raptors, for instance, there were games up there in Toronto where he would literally have, he wouldn't even have the ball yet. And there'd be three people defending him. Like yeah. that's just that, that's the degree of gravity that he possesses and has. So, um, yeah. yeah. And as much as we just talked about Demonis Sabonis and how much we love Demonis Sabonis, <laughs> I think they unquestionably got the better end of this deal with yeah. Tyrese Halliburton. Tyrese Halliburton is so good. He's on a rookie scale deal. He is just going to be an all star. I think yeah. I really do. Uh, the last question I will give you is where are you at on Tyrese Halliburton? My uh, my beautiful sweet one of my favorite point guards in the NBA. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be the team that had traded Tyrese in the second year of his rookie deal. And that comes from me being somebody who, like we just said, is very high on DeMontis Sabonis. But yeah, I mean, I think that my favorite thing about Tyrese, and this is going to spoil part of my article, but his his eye manipulation and his ability, like he does so many things as a passer that if you just think about them in your head, you're like, that would never make sense. You would never do that. Yeah. Like, for instance, like I've seen him make a jump or a bounce pass from the air. Like in your head, oh, yeah. you're like, yeah, in your head, you'd be like, well, you can't do that. Like, part of the reason you maintain your feet is so that you can be able to have a chest pass or a bounce pass and have more mm-hmm. angles available at your disposal. And yet, then I'll just be watching them in transition, and Tyrese will rise up and throw a bounce pass from the air to Isaiah Jackson. And it's like, what and did I'll I tell just you, watch? 
that was held against him pre-draft. Like teams were like, oh yeah, like he jumps, he like leaves his feet all the time. Like there's no way that's going to work in the NBA. Yeah, and there are times like in in defense of that take, like there are moments where I do want him to get deeper off of ball screens and force the defense to commit before he does it. But like his hang time is so good in combination with his eye manipulation that he doesn't even have to make the decision on the way up. He makes yeah. the decision in the air and you can see him oh, do it. No, he he makes the decision. I think he makes the decision before he leaves his feet a lot of the time. And he's specifically leaving his feet to draw defenders toward him because there's just no really other guard that does this, right? So the natural defender's inclination is that once a guy leaves his feet, okay, we're going to close on him. But Tyrese has thought this through already. He's diagnosed what he wants to do, and he's doing it strategically. He's leaving his feet strategically to be able to do this. And while you're right, like he, I think he just trusts his processing ability that even if when he leaves his feet, he is making, you know, his first his first read that he is leaving his feet to hit uh, is taken away right he still just trusts his ability to make another read it's it's strategic and it's processing like it's both things he has both of those elite skills and it's unlike any he's unlike any other watch in the nba right now i think um in terms of that like it's a special combination of um weird skills that is fun no, it absolutely is, and I think that there is a Tyrese effect because you could see with every big that he played with that after the trade was made, when he was on the court, their two percentage was higher. And some of that's like his own gravity just being out to three, but like I'll go into a little bit of detail about my favorite thing of him as a passer. Like if you just think of general like trap the box and sink rotations, like the help the helper coming off the corner to sink into the legs of a guy at the dunker spot. Like the reason the defense is doing that is because most of the time the guards are going to look and see what's ahead of them first. And then, you know, we're giving up the longest available pass. We're going to be able to get out and recover to that. Like Tyrese preys on that completely and he does it in the reverse way. So like he's going to practically stare down those options, get the guy to actually like manipulate the defense. So that tertiary defender moves off. And then the guy under the basket is getting an absolute wide open shot. And this is in part why I believe in the eight and trade even more because like he, instead of like a lot of times we think of it's an inside out passing progression. He has an outside in passing progression that makes things inside even more open than what you think they should be. Yeah, no, he's he's unbelievable. Caitlin, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what you've got coming up. Right. So my handle is at C2 underscore Cooper on Twitter. I'm at Indy Cornrows about twice a week. I also have a podcast there where we do one or two episodes per week there as well. And then coming up, if the eight and trade happens, I have a very long article sitting in my drafts that people will be able to read. <laughs> Honestly, I, I just hope that you release it regardless. Like, just make <laughs> make someone pay for it and release it because I am already certain it will be better than anything else written on the subject. Everyone go follow Caitlin. I think that it, the work is just staggering at the end of the day. Uh, just unbelievable. Uh, this has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We will be back uh, later this week with something pretty fun. I am going to wait until I actually record it, until I say what it is on Twitter. But uh, follow my Twitter timeline. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel as well because it will have a video component. Uh, until next time, we will talk soon.